I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Nine one one. What's the address of the emergency? Please, Emmanuel Churches. Please, people, shot down here. Please send somebody right away. Shot the pastor. He shot all the men in the church. Please come right away. Okay, my partner's going to be getting some help on the way. Will I get a little bit more information from you? Okay, stay on the line with me. He's still in here. I'm afraid he's still in here. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Please. Okay, ma'am, if he's coming, I need you to be as quiet as possible. Is there something that you can hide under? I'm under the table. And where are the weapons now? He's got it in his hand. He's reloading. He's reloading? Okay, I need you to bear with me, okay? How many shots has he fired? I don't know. There's so many. Three different rounds are all kind of... God, please. Welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast, episode number 13 of Series 8. And I'm here, and across from me is the Brook Babylon, Barn Burning, Backstreet Broomstick Bloodying, Ben Carter. I see what we're doing. I see you're alphabetizing your, your alliteration. That's very cool. Um, we, we arrive on what would be considered the Boxing Day of this series, sort of the day after the what could have been the finale. Um, episode 13, unlucky for some. Um, mm. All of the sort of hitting all the marks there about uh, the, the number that we've arrived to. But how, how are we doing, boys? How are we, producer Dan? Very good. Uh, I'm very excited to jump into the case. I've got my tea with oat milk, uh, which is a bit weird, to be honest with you. I uh, My wife is vegan and uh, we got this butter dish. I like a butter dish rather than in the fridge. And we got some vegan butter in the butter dish, which was quite new. I started thinking that my taste buds had changed and bread was tasting weird. And then I actually figured out, no, it's just the shitty butter. So um, I'm going back, I'm going back to um, 
I'm quite, I quite like salty butter as well. And salty like, butter is good, really, yeah. yeah. And I thought it was just me. And I was Googling it. And it goes, the changes of taste could be Parkinson's. I was like, oh, please don't be Parkinson's. <laughs> uh, so I think it was just the butter. But anyway, we are back once again with a brand new case. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's one that we posted about um, a long time ago on our Instagram. I believe Benny was actually flagged on our Instagram for being um, being inappropriate, the post we did about it. Ah, it could well have been. Yeah, it could well have been. It was, um, yeah, it was a long time ago, but I think, yeah, we've had one or two of the old flags raised and there and will be he, a few flags raised sorry. in this case. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry, sorry, sorry please. No, no please. sorry. I keep still interrupting. No, please. You, you do the old bit because it was good and I just spoke all over it. <laughs> it's all right. I mean, I, I was uh, I was going to worm my way into the old butter conversation as well, but I just opted not to um, because it may not come as a surprise that I like tacky butter. I like utterly butterly bit of margarine that doesn't surprise me yeah um i was talking all over you there i felt like tinkerbell when she walked in the ink and she walked all over the paper <laughs> making a right mess of it but anyway um it is a it's a case uh we, we'll just go straight into it guys it is the, it is the case of dylan roof um also known as the charleston church shooting the charleston church massacre a little credit to gq for this one a most american terrorist the making of dylan roof um and yeah ben's cryptic clue last week was all houses need one bob Dylan, Dylan Roof. Roof. Yeah. Um, yeah, Bob Dylan, Dan. Yeah, thank you. And all houses do. Do need a roof, I guess. Yeah. I can't think of any that don't. Uh, what did you say, Teletubbies? Was it a roof or was it just a hill? <laughs> I guess we'll get down, get down to that another time. But yes, um, this case is, well, no two ways about it. It's a very dark case. It's a very sad case. Um, and sadly, it's, it's a subject matter and motive and um, theories behind it that we kind of covered previously before in other cases. It's a lot of things that link up to other cases we've covered. But um, yes, we will get into it. Yeah, there, there were, as, as we've just shown there and as Tom mentioned, there's not too many different case titles for this week. But it is, you know, a little bit of trivia. Um, the second case running consecutively that we've had the initials DR, which I thought is kind of you know, unusual. Uh, it's also our third time in as many weeks in South Carolina. So we're doctor, kind of... Doctor, doctor, I like margarine. Grow up. That's the doctor. He's a, he's a mean doctor. He might, turn, he might turn up later on in the episode as well. Oh, Jesus. Uh, terrifying. But yeah, we're, we're, we're becoming very uh, familiar with the, the territory here in South Carolina. Yeah, it's our third time in four weeks, uh, having covered a case in South Carolina, having also covered the case of Todd Colehep earlier in the series, the Amazon Review Killer uh, here on the main channel, and also having recently covered The Girl in the Bunker. Uh, the abduction of Elizabeth Schoff, uh, where foolishly I thought South Carolina might be, you know, there might have been quite local cases to one another, but yeah, it was about an hour and a half away. It's a big state. America's a big place, which I'm, yeah, I'm learning more each week. But yeah, a really harrowing case, a really upsetting case, and one that yeah, we've done a bit of a deep dive into for this week's episode. For sure, and as we as we always do, we like to throw to producer Dan to uh, set the scene a little bit. So Dan, can I borrow? Can we borrow your lovely tones to uh, tell the listeners a little bit more about this case? Yeah, it'll cost you. How much? <laughs> Fuck's sake! Stop it. Dylan Roos' name is indelibly etched into a harrowing chapter of hatred, evil, prejudice, and violence. In a moment that defied comprehension, and armed with the intent of igniting a race war. Roof unleashed a torrent of gunfire on June 17, 2015, within the hallowed walls of the Mother Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. His chillingly calculated actions claimed the lives of nine innocent souls, forever impacting the community and homes from which they were taken. The chilling motive behind his heinous act, coupled with the profound impact it had on a series of families bound by faith and resilience, serves as a stark reminder of the darkness that could be hidden beneath the surface of society. 
and a bowl cut. Um, <laughs> every point of this case, if he hadn't got such a distinctive haircut, he might have been on the uh, on the run for a little bit longer. It was a very distinctive look, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, and the reason behind it is uh, yeah, interesting one yeah. as well. Why, why did he have the bowl cut? Well, we'll, we'll get into that, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, he, it does add to his terrifying look, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's the first thing that really... Ca- obviously, his crimes are absolutely atrocious. And um, yeah, it is definitely an act of terror. But the, the the appearance that he had and the photos that are available of this case are very bizarre and very quite, quite haunting to look at. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I know I'll put my hands up here. I know we did mention last series after our Sandy Hook episode that we would be taking a break from kind of the the mass shooting cases for a little bit. However, when we sat down to kind of pick our 17 episodes for this series, obviously we've got an 18th one, which will be the audience vote. So if you're not already, head over to Instagram uh, because we'll uh, we'll be doing an audience vote very, very soon. But when we looked into this case, I thought there would be a ton of other bits of content, documentaries, podcasts out there about it. But there's very, very few, which I found quite surprising. So from that side of things, um, we kind of wanted to do a bit of a deep dive and be able to shine more of a light on this tragedy um, and see exactly how it came to happen and how his ultimately his, his master plan failed uh, his broader mission in, in igniting his race war that he wanted to be at the sparking point of. Um, you know, fortunately, he completely failed in that mission. Um, but yeah, really tragic case, really upsetting one. And uh, yeah, it's one that I completely understand a lot of people are going to find quite difficult to listen to. But yeah, as with um, as with many of the mass shooting cases and many of the other cases we do cover here on the pod, it's completely heartbreaking and as seems to be the pattern with these particular cases, a completely preventable one. Um, and there are particular moments that are incredibly frustrating in how he was able to fly under the radar right to the point of June 17th. So we will have extracts from Dylan's quote-unquote manifesto scattered throughout the episode, as well as survivor testimonies and other key witness statements. But to highlight what an evil, warped individual we are dealing with in today's case, we're going to start with a note that was found in Dylan's jail cell just six weeks after the shooting. I would like to make it crystal clear that I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I have killed. I do feel sorry for the innocent white children forced to live in this sick country, and I do feel sorry for the innocent white people that are killed daily at the hands of the lower races. Oh, c***. I have shed a tear of self-pity for myself. I feel pity that I had to do what I did in the first place. I feel pity that I had to give up my life because of a situation that should never have existed. And that's a key thing that's going to keep happening in this case. He very much frames it as he had no choice but to do this heinous thing we're going to go into. But obviously that is just not the case at all. Um, He was very much radicalised over quite a very quick period of time. Um... And in his mind, perhaps he thought that he had to do it and act upon it. But um, yes, we'll we'll, we'll, um, dissect that throughout the case. So a warning that we'll obviously be quoting directly from content, which does include various offensive racial slurs. So let's jump into it. Dylan Storm Roof was born on the 3rd of April 1994 in Columbia, South Carolina. That is a stupid name, sorry. Thank you. Storm Roof, though, it's just like a very, you know, well-protected house. If you lived in a bunker, you'd want a storm roof, wouldn't you? Not defending him. You could say that about anything there, really. Anything that's well built or good for what? life, good for the environment. It doesn't make it a good name, does it? Brick? Yeah. That was a cool name, actually. Actually, you don't want a brick roof, do you? I'd be scared of that. Yeah. But it does sound cool. Heavy, Dylan, st- Dylan heavy cladding roof. 
Dylan Storm Roof was born on the 3rd of April 1994 in Columbia, South Carolina. He was the oldest of two children born to Franklin Bennett Roof. Yes, maybe Storm is... No, I like Bennett. Who went by the nickname Ben. Like him even more. Uh, and Amelia Amy Cowles. The couple would have a daughter named Morgan Roof a few years after Dylan was born. Dylan's childhood and upbringing was marked by personal difficulties, a great deal of abuse, and many challenges that would play a significant role in shaping his later actions of evil. Dylan's father Franklin worked as a labourer on various different construction sites and earned additional money as a carpenter. Dylan had somewhat of a troubled relationship with his father, but still looked up to him and loved him very much. An interesting note to make on the parents is actually, and we haven't had this before on the pod, but they'd actually filed for divorce a couple of years before Dylan was born, but had opted to kind of get back together again once they learned that uh, Amelia was pregnant. Some neighbours that have been interviewed uh, about this stated that maybe Dylan was conceived during a one-night stand between the two and they'd rekindled their relationship slightly. And there are also allegations that Franklin was highly abusive to Amelia and therefore he was able to manipulate her and sort of win her over again and again despite allegations of being physically abusive. Franklin reportedly struggled with alcoholism, employment and legal troubles which impacted the household for the majority of Dylan's life. And despite the pair trying to give things another go when Dylan was born, Franklin and Amelia separated for good shortly after baby Morgan was born, with Dylan being just three years old at the time of their separation. Dylan's mother, Amelia, worked as a bartender and would regularly work double shifts in order to keep a stable income, coming in for the family shortly after the separation. Dylan and his sister Morgan would live between their parents for most of their childhoods, which caused additional strain on Franklin and Amelia. With the pair growing to resent one another, both of the Roof children began to feel like neither of their parents wanted them under their roof. Oh, and she was working double shifts, serving double drinks. So, d- doubles, double sh- shots. <laughs> the Roof one made sense. I know, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I Check, the, please. I felt like the Roof just came in on this podcast. Um <laughs> So, uh, yes, um, the, the Dylan and Morgan both, uh, as, as a result of the frequent upheaval, felt neither of the parents wanted them. That They felt like they, they both were an inconvenience for them. However, as the pair grew older, Franklin got married to a woman named Paige Mann in November of 1999. With this marriage, Dylan and Morgan became step-siblings to an older sister, Amber. And from this point onwards, the pair would live predominantly with their father in what remained a fairly unstable dynamic. Franklin would take on more work as a carpenter, often leading him to being away from the family home for several days at a time. Reports suggest that Dylan had a troubled relationship with both his father and new stepmother as he grew older, experiencing instability and conflicts within the new family home. It did not help things that, in this new relationship, Franklin was also regularly physically and verbally abusive to his new wife. Apparently, the fights would most commonly occur after Franklin had had a few drinks and the pair would often become violent in front of their young children. Franklin is said to have gradually shredded the self-esteem of Dylan's stepmother, Page, even from the earliest moments of their marriage, and he kept her in a form of virtual prison by calling her several times a day from work, demanding to know where she was and what she was doing, which is, yeah, that's horrific. Page would later say that Franklin subjected her to a pattern of control and mental manipulation far beyond anything she could have comprehended when she met and subsequently married him. 
For the majority of Dylan's early life, he would live in different homes with his father and stepmother across South Carolina, where he would attend at least seven different schools during a period of nine years, including White Knoll High School. Though between the years of 2005 to 2008, the family briefly moved down to a small beach house on the Florida Keys, where there are no records that Dylan, or either his sister or stepsister, attended any local school in the area whatsoever. So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of, so what would he have been then, 2005, so he'd kind of been 11 to 13 then, and perhaps not going to school. Mm. As a result of the frequent moving, and obviously with Dylan going to seven different schools uh, over nine years, both of the children struggled to form or maintain any close relationships with friends as a result of their constant relocation. His stepsister and younger sister grew ever closer as time went on, so they kind of had each other to confide in, further isolating Dylan in particular. As a student, Dylan's academic performance was below average, and he struggled socially at his various schools in South Carolina. Between the ages of 13 and 14, he was made to repeat the ninth grade, and he had to repeat this grade in a new school. He occasionally attended classes in dirty clothes, appearing unwashed and very emotionally detached. Some teachers did raise these concerns directly with the parents, but never with social services. The parents would claim that Dylan always left the house looking clean and healthy, and speculated that perhaps he was doing this to appear different. He was described by classmates as quiet, organised and introverted, with some students describing him as someone who occasionally exhibited signs of racial prejudice even from such a young age. Dylan's views seemed to intensify as he grew older and began spending a great deal of his free time on his computer. Patricia Hastings, Paige Mann's mother and Dylan's step-grandmother, described Franklin and Dylan as follows in a later interview of NBC. Franklin comes from a very good family, very well educated. He is from church-going, God-loving people who would never condone or teach this sort of thing to their children. I never imagined he'd have anything bad in his heart toward people. I just don't know when, or how, Dylan got so lost. It is worth noting that despite some of Dylan's former classmates saying that he showed signs of racial prejudice from a young age, other classmates have remarked that some of his only friends in school were black. In 2009, after 10 years of marriage, Paige and Franklin mutually agreed to divorce, though many believe that this was more so on Paige's part due to her having grown tired of Franklin's abuse and drinking. In an affidavit that was filed by Paige as part of her divorce proceedings, she went on to state that the divorce was due to Franklin having struck her multiple times. She described her at the time 15-year-old stepson Dylan as follows. I basically raised him while his father was away with work for four days at a time, each week. He was a very sweet kid who grew into a painfully shy loner. Despite what you might read or hear, he was very smart. Too smart. He would even get bored in advanced classes at school. He was locked in his room looking up bad stuff on his computer. Something on the computer drew him in. This is the internet evil. He would fixate on things. His dad tried to help him. His mother tried to help him. We all really tried to help him. At around the same age, his stepmother Paige also stated that Dylan developed some obsessive tendencies, displaying numerous signs of OCD in his teenage years, including germophobia and becoming fascinated by his own appearance, insisting on his now infamous bowl-cut hairstyle as well as the very specific articles of clothing. He would also insist on his room being kept immaculately clean and not allowing anybody to enter the room without permission. So talking about Dylan's hair, infamous haircut, apparently the reason he went for it was because he felt like he had an odd-shaped head. And it was a way to hide um, people from seeing it. So he was very conscious about the shape of his head. So he went for the bowl cut. Interesting. Which um, I had a bowl cut when I was little, but I don't think that's the reason my mum said, yeah. have a bowl cut because you've got a weird shaped head. But uh, it's very uh, clockwork orangey, his appearance. Mm. 
At this point, it could be considered that Dylan was attempting to become the man of the house, whilst his father was so often away from home with work. Perhaps at the request of his stepmother, he also enrolled in his local evangelical Lutheran congregation, though there is no record as to whether or not he attended any events or the church itself. The following year in 2010, 16-year-old Dylan dropped out of school entirely. He began working odd jobs mowing people's lawns and doing odd bits of landscape gardening. So, green, very green-thumbed, I guess. Hmm. Oh, you smiling at that. <laughs> I just thought you were going to come to me. You're going to throw no, it to no. me. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your head isn't that oddly shaped, is it? You wear a lot of hats, but... Oh, that's why I wear them. Okay. Good. <laughs> Conehead, but also started developing an interest in marijuana, alcohol and video games. And he would apparently work just enough in order to be able to fund his habits and then retreat to his bedroom for days at a time. This cycle would continue for the next couple of years. Dylan had already been warned about drugs at the age of 14 when he was caught trying to buy marijuana in the middle of school. I sound so white, he's saying marijuana. Weed. He wanted some dank stuff. Ooh. God, just let him have it. He's 14. I actually don't let him have it. Um, Any time his father Franklin returned home from work, he would berate Dylan's lack of motivation and lack of prospects to the point that it almost become physical. Each time this happened, Dylan would go and stay with his biological mother, Amelia, in nearby Hopkins, Richland County. So yeah, I have a theory on this little cycle that he's um, indulging in. So he obviously works enough to get a couple hundred dollars saved up and then he'll use that to... Um, obviously go out and buy some drugs, alcohol, maybe some snacks. and Some hungries when he gets the munchies. Some hungries when he gets the munchies, yeah, and, and maybe a couple video games. And then he would obviously retreat into his bedroom for days at a time. If his dad is away from the family home for four days at a time, I reckon it's those four days that he's in his little nest and then he's working when his dad's home because I think they've got an odd relationship and... Uh, I don't think he would uh, perhaps behave like that if his father was at home because they had a, he was a very stern disciplinarian. We've covered mm-hmm. a lot of stern disciplinarians recently. but yep. religious, stern, ticking the boxes. Yeah, so that that's my theory. I reckon they were uh, sort of working the same sort of schedules. No, opposite schedules, sorry. Over his remaining teenage years, Dylan would live between his mother and father's homes in Hopkins and downtown Columbia, respectively. But he would also occasionally live in a ranch-style home known as Peaceful Acres in Eastover, South Carolina, which was owned by the mother of a former friend from middle school, Danny Beard. Uh, yeah. Mummy Beard. Yeah. Ma- <laughs> so this Peaceful Acres property quite an interesting one i read a sun article about some sun investigators trying to get to the property and get an interview from danny beard and danny beard was having none of it but in this property he would have his own little room in the ranch house where he would continue to drink excessively and take drugs when dylan stayed here he would stay with danny danny's mother two of danny's brothers and one of their girlfriends though there is very little information available about them many have speculated that some or all of them were believers of white supremacy. Mm. So yeah, this is where he could kind of go away, wouldn't be under the watchful eye of his mother or uh, stepmother or even his father, and he could kind of get away with what he wants. And there's a lot of, obviously, footage of him later in the timeline of uh, practicing shooting in the garden of this property. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting situation that he's found himself in, possibly with like-minded people. Mm. The Peaceful Acres property is an important one to note. As well as Dylan spending a lot of time here, he is also plastered with patriotic and pro-gun signage, including Smith & Wesson, Buy War Bonds, Land of the Free, Don't Tread on Me, Winchester Rifles, and a slogan surrounded by American eagles that read, Everyone remembers, no one forgets. Prisoner of war, missing in action. Outside the home, there was also a sign on the porch that said, 
Harley Davidson parking only, which um, it's very tacky. Their signs, isn't it? Yeah, I've got two of them. Better than your car. You've got you got my Jags in the my Jags in the garage. It hasn't even got a garage. <laughs> my chicken's in the bin. Yeah, we can smell it then. It's <laughs> <laughs> they took it. Did they? There. they took it. To be fair, still feeling the effects. A binman, of my... a binman's not going to go. A bin man. Binman, a bin man isn't going to go, oh, that, that bin's are too stinky for me, considering I don't know food stuff. Because you're not supposed to overfill it, which I didn't. Mm. But I've also, I don't know, I've heard that some really stinky ones can be left. Mm. Or a quick call to the police. Yeah, but... it's a lot of old chicken. Awful. Yes. During this time, and perhaps during his stay to the property, Dylan became increasingly more influenced by white supremacist ideologies and racist neo-Nazi beliefs. Online investigations were later revealed that he frequented websites known for promoting hate speech, white supremacy, neo-Nazi ideologies, and racial intolerance. Dylan's growing fascination and involvement in such online communities and forums showcases attraction to white supremacist symbols and ideas, indicating a deepening radicalisation in the teenager. In February of 2012, shortly before Dylan turned 18, it could be argued that the most pivotal moment in this week's case took place. So during the late evening of February 26, 2012, 17-year-old African-American Trayvon Martin was walking through the gated community of Twin Lakes in Sanford, Florida. Now, Trayvon was in this area because his father's girlfriend had a townhouse there and uh, him as well as his father were staying together with her. Now, debate has since raged on about how and why the following events unfolded, but Trayvon was observed by a seemingly very, very busy member of the local neighbourhood watch, George Zimmerman. From what I've been able to read, he would frequently call uh, local police. Uh, his his neighbourhood watch wasn't a, a, a regulated one, like an actually official one. Mm. Um, and uh, he made uh, between 40 to 50 calls within a, the space of a month to police about people that he didn't like the look of in his uh, in his little gated community and at this point Zimmerman has just gone to the local shop to get some groceries and this is where he's encountered Trayvon. So on this particular evening after making several calls to 911 alleging that Trayvon was behaving in a suspicious way and essentially labelling him a criminal without any kind of real uh, reasoning behind that Zimmerman decided to take matters into his own hands and he approached Trayvon and the pair got into a physical confrontation bearing in mind uh, Zimmerman is a, a middle-aged man and, and Trayvon was just 17 at the time now this physical confrontation that Zimmerman and Trayvon got into actually unfortunately resulted in 17 year old Trayvon being fatally shot uh, causing him to lose his life the event, the trial and the outcome caused national and perhaps even global outrage with the majority of America being in the defence of Trayvon and protests being launched in uproar. However, this infuriated Dylan at the time who believed that Zimmerman was only standing his ground and therefore was some kind of victim himself. So you could kind of compare it to the more recent tragic death of George Floyd and note that it is likely that Dylan would have absolutely sided with the officers responsible. So that's obviously condensing a hugely significant case into kind of two paragraphs there. But for the impact that it had on Dylan, he was outraged that any part of America would view uh, Zimmerman as anything but a kind of standing his ground kind of hero in this instance. And he was actually the victim. So this is what some people believe and what actually um, uh, Roof would later go on to say was a key factor in him later going on to make the decision that he made. So in the first portion of his later manifesto, Dylan would write the following about his views on the case. The event that truly awakened me was the Trayvon Martin case. I kept hearing and seeing his name, 
and eventually I decided to look him up. I read the Wikipedia article and right away I was unable to understand what the big deal was. It was obvious that Zimmerman was in the right, but more importantly, this prompted me to type in the words black on white crime into Google, and I have never been the same since that day. The first website I came to was the Council of Conservative Citizens. There were pages upon pages of these brutal black on white murders. I was in disbelief. At this moment, I realised that something was very wrong. How could the news be blowing up the Trayvon Martin case while hundreds of these black and white murders got ignored? The following year, Dylan's uncle, Carson Cowles, who was his biological mother's brother, began to notice a huge change in his now 19-year-old nephew's attitude and behaviours. Carson apparently expressed concern to both his sister, as well as Franklin, stating the following. He was 19. He was a man. Dylan still didn't have a job, a driver's licence or anything like that, and he just stayed in his room a lot of the time. I tried to mentor him and take him under my wing, but he couldn't care less about me after Amelia and Franklin separated. He cut off all contact at around this time and didn't even respond to a wedding invite when his own mother finally planned to remarry. As he entered his early 20s, Dylan's behaviour continued to escalate to the point that during a period of three months, he would have just as many interactions with local police, including two arrests and one lengthy investigation. On the 28th of February 2015, Dylan entered the Columbiana Centre, which is a large one-storey indoor shopping mall in Columbia, South Carolina. Dylan did so dressed in all black, with dark black glasses covering his eyes. Very matrixy. <laughs> it's very matrixy, yeah. yeah. We imagine um, it was very the matrixy kind of style. Uh, once he entered, it is alleged that Dylan began asking several different employees within the mall a series of an unsettling questions, including whether or not they would like to try some new technology drug, as well as asking them about their beliefs and culture and society. Matrixy, then, or Matrix Use is leather. Oh, I would say that's kind of matrixy. Ma- leather jackets and Matrix, mate. Oh, yeah, yeah, kind of Matrixy. Got the leather gloves. Matrixy, if your mum dressed you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right, yeah, that's yeah, we'll go with that. Including whether or not they would like to try some new technology drug, so maybe Matrixy, the red or blue pill, as well as asking them about their beliefs and culture and society. It would also apparently ask people what their favorite color was. Mm. Yeah, strange. I don't know, I can't see colors. Hey, that's offensive. <laughs> This behaviour was reported to Mall Security, who then called the police, who apprehended Dylan around 15 minutes later. When they detained Dylan, he gave them permission to search him, with officers expecting to find some form of concealed weapon. Instead, they found several strips of Suboxone, which is a prescription medication used to treat the disorder of opioid use, and is very commonly sold illegally between drug dealers for therapeutic use rather than recreational use. As Dylan did not have any kind of valid prescription for the drug, he was arrested for a misdemeanor charge of drug possession, and was subsequently banned from the Columbiana Centre shopping mall for a year. The following month, on the 13th of March 2015, Dylan was investigated for sitting in his parked car near a large park in downtown Columbia. He sat in his car alone for several hours, apparently without moving. Which is, yeah, that's that's quite spooky, isn't it? Mm. Very, sort of. Maybe it's plugged, plugged into the Matrix. Yes, could well have been. Could well have been. Um, he had been recognised due to his distinctive haircut by an off-duty police officer who had been involved with the questioning at the Columbiana Centre. So he had, he had been involved in uh, looking into Dylan the previous month. The off-duty officer then called a colleague to look into what Dylan was doing, just sitting there for so long. 
a police officer arrived and questioned Dylan, who said that he was waiting for a friend. So the police officer obviously asked Dylan what was going on. He said he was waiting for a friend. The officer then asks to conduct a search of his vehicle. And the search revealed a forearm grip of an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, as well as six unloaded 40-round magazines. But there was no AR-15 rifle to be found. So when the officer asked Dylan why he had all of these items but not the rifle, Dylan explained that he wanted to buy an AR-15 but could not afford one. So he just got the, the forearm grip and a number of bullets. As a result of this, he was let go as it was not illegal for him to possess either the ammunition or the forearm grip uh, in South Carolina. Fortunately, on this occasion as well, Dylan was never able to purchase the assault rifle, which you can only imagine the figures for this week's case would have been even more horrific um, had he have done so. On the 26th of April 2015, Dylan was arrested once again. This time for returning to and trespassing on the Columbiana Centre shopping mall's grounds, which was in violation of the ban. This time, Dylan was dressed in much more vibrant colours, but was noticed due to his distinctive haircut. He had managed just under two months of his year-long ban. Ban was then extended for three additional years. It is not known what Dylan was doing or intending to do at the location. The very same month, Dylan purchased a Glock 41 pistol and several rounds of ammunition, keeping the weapon hidden from all his friends and family allegedly with the exception of those at Peaceful Acres. So here's a horrible note. It will be revealed a month after Dylan's later crimes by then-FBI director James Comey that Dylan's first arrest, the one in February where he was found to be carrying several strips of Suboxone, was first written up by arresting officers as a felony, which would have essentially gone on his record and would have raised an inquiry on a weapons background check when Dylan later purchased his Glock pistol. A Dylan's crime at the mall was actually legally a misdemeanor charge, and it was said that Dylan could potentially have been stopped from buying firearms under a law that barred, quote, unlawful users of or addicted to any controlled substance from purchasing or owning firearms. Director James Comey would later write and release a full statement on behalf of the FBI, apologizing for this human error. He opened his statement as follows. I believe the job of the FBI director is to be as transparent as possible with the American people, because we work for them. As you know, I try hard to explain our work to them, and I am also committed to explaining them when we make a mistake and what I intend to do about it. I'm here today to talk to you about a mistake in a matter of heartbreaking importance to all of us. Dylan Roof, the alleged killer of so many innocent people here at the Emmanuel AME Church, should not have been allowed to purchase the gun he allegedly used that evening. Let me tell you what happened, as I understand it. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts today so essentially the officer that then went to do the paperwork at the jail if he had written the uh, charge correctly as a misdemeanor rather than a felony it would have stayed on dylan's record and therefore prevented him from purchasing the glock pistol that he would go on to use in the attack so yeah you can only imagine everybody's frustration and uh, the amount of upset that that of course caused knowing that that error um, led to Dylan obtaining a Glock pistol. By his late teenage years and early 20s, Dylan had reportedly become so enamoured with the idea of perpetrating a violent attack targeting black people to the point that it was all he fought and spoke about to those who knew him. 
It's said that he wanted to incite a race war. On his 21st birthday, his father Franklin gifted Dylan a 45 caliber pistol, according to his uncle Carson. And there are, like many mass shootings we have covered previously, numerous photos of Dylan proudly posing with his birthday pistol, as well as his secret clock. According to one of his very few friends at the time, who has decided to remain anonymous, Dylan was obsessed with the death of Trayvon Martin and believed wholeheartedly in the innocence of George Zimmerman, who was controversially found not guilty in 2013. Dylan would regularly rant about modern-day society, black-on-white crimes, and had also now become obsessed with a new case, and this one was the death of Freddie Gray Jr., a 25-year-old African-American who was taken into custody by Baltimore Police Department for the possession of a knife, sustaining fatal injuries whilst in custody and later dying. This event also sparked huge uproar across the country and the 17-day-long Baltimore protests of 2015 were launched. And this left Dylan absolutely seething once again. Um, and he felt very much that there was too much public sympathy for, for this victim and that there was not enough light being shed on what he perceived as uh, crimes against white people. He had sided entirely with the Baltimore Police Department. According to his friend, Dylan would get so worked up during these rants that he said he wanted to kill a, quote, large volume of black people and my best bet is Charleston College. I have to stop blacks from taking over the world. But these rants were never taken seriously by his friend. The friend also claimed that Dylan was an advocate for the return of racial segregation to America and also said the best thing to happen to the country would be for another civil war to take place. Despite these claims not being taken seriously by the friend, who it is believed also lived at Peaceful Acres with Dylan, he did get scared by one of the rants to the point that on more than one occasion, he hid Dylan's gun from him, only for the gun to be returned to Dylan due to the girlfriend of one of the housemates seeing the weapons and reminding him that her boyfriend was on probation. On briefly hiding the guns as well as his fears of him, his friend said, I don't think a church was ever his primary target because he told us he was going for the school. But I think he can get into the school because of the security. So I think he just settled for a church in the end. Whilst all of this had been happening throughout the early months of 2015, Dylan still had a couple of friends that were black, both of whom claimed that although they had never heard or seen Dylan coming out with any kind of racial prejudice, they were aware that he was quite a volatile person, who had confided to them his plans of one day becoming a school shooter. Yes, there's a lot of accounts from friends that do say about um, Dylan that they didn't know that he was racist or at all involved with um, white supremacy. So he wasn't like just blindly ranting to anyone about it. He seemed to be very um, careful who he picked, who he talked about these things to. But um, yeah, him having black friends, it seems bizarre with his obviously hatred he has deep within him that that was the case. Yeah, and the other thing that is kind of different to him compared to some of the other similar cases we've covered is that he was self-radicalized. So everything that he felt and believed didn't come from you know other individuals that he was friends with or family members. He went online and he developed these own beliefs and feelings yeah. through, off his own back. You know, his parents didn't share the same beliefs. There was no one in his family that had that as well. So mm. that was, yeah, very, very curious how that all came to be. In February of the same year, Dylan launched his own website, lastrhodesian.com. Dylan used the site to store many photos of himself, as well as photos of his weapons and his manifesto. These photos, some of which he would actually post to his own Facebook page, included photos of himself wearing a camouflage jacket with two American white supremacist emblems stitched onto it. 
There was also a photo of Dylan holding a small Confederate flag, as well as one of his pistols in front of a small set of plant pots, which I know obviously made a point of saying small there a lot, but they are, it's a small flag and it's a small set of plant pots. But also, he is perhaps one of the least intimidating looking mass shooters that we've ever covered. I know that's saying a lot because we've also covered Adam Lanza and a, and a lot of these individuals, you could stand them alongside each other and they all have very similar traits and, and, and appearances. Um, small, skinny, white guys. Mm. Um, but Dylan is, yeah, he's perhaps the least, I don't know. I don't know what he's, his, I obviously get that he's showing off his, his views in these photos, but I don't get, because he's kind of pulling what appears to be intimidating poses with his weapons out and sort of staring at the camera, burning the flags. But I don't know. Was he, was he, do you think he was planning? Obviously he's put them on his website, so he wants other people to eventually see them. But I just, I don't understand. I think it's, it's, it's literally for things like this, it's, it's a legacy he's leaving online. If he's thinking he's going to go down in the history of doing what he's done, it'll be the photos that are used to discuss him really, which is, you know, we don't want to be basically doing what he wants us to do in, in the sense of that. But um, it must be for that reason. He's, he's living, he's trying to be the person that he wants to be um, online which he obviously isn't in real life. Um, there's also a photo of Dylan wearing a gold gym vest whilst burning the American flag. There are also multiple photos of Dylan posing on his car, which has a seemingly custom Confederate flag license plate. In one instance, he is wearing all black, topped up with a long black trench coat and leather gloves, as we discussed earlier, the kind of matrixy, kind of mum matrix mode, whilst saluting the camera. Many of the photos also included the neo-Nazi code number of 88, which is apparently code for Hail Hitler. Um, Put me right off that number. I'd be, you were born 78, weren't you? 89, you fucking, same as you. <laughs> what? Is 88 your favourite number? 8 is my favourite number and I don't mind 88. And Well, I didn't mind 88 until... I did not know that that was code. Mm. Did you? No, I'm 89, mate, so... Same. All right, mate. Uh, Dylan is believed to have taken all these photos by himself using a timer. Um, a few pathetic. months later... Pardon? Pathetic. What? He's a pathetic person. Not that there's anything For wrong that with people bit. that no 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 um, all, all of, things all of it all of it collectively <laughs> oh he does he has to take photos of himself by himself does he that's pathetic no, all of it the image he's trying to conjure knowing that he sat there and got it already first and then set a timer Oh, he infuriates me not just because of the timer though it for does everything seem like you've picked a weird thing to be annoyed about I saw a gap and I went in with my fury oh you're not Eddie Hearn mate that's oh Frank go Warren. on then it's Frank Warren isn't it looks after fury. Uh, a few months later and Dylan brings to a close the first portion of his 2,444 word online manifesto which is broken down into several different chapters titled chapter number one blacks two jews three hispanics four east asians five patriotism and six an explanation Dylan also makes two separate lists of likely churches to target as well as the list of his prospective target victims he finishes with the following haunting final entry I have no choice I'm not in the position to, alone, go into the ghetto and fight. I chose Charleston because it is the most historic city in my state, and at one time had the highest ratio of blacks to whites in the country. We have no skinheads, no real KKK, no one doing anything but talking on the internet. Well, someone has to have the bravery to take it to the real world, and I guess that has to be me. See, as I mentioned earlier on, he's very much angling this as, no one else is doing this, so I have to do this in order to push things forward. Uh, meaning trying to put it as you know he has no choice but to do this according to web server logs Rib's online manifesto which was hosted on his own website was last modified at 4.44pm 
on June 17th, 2015, when Dylan wrote, At the time of writing, I am in a great hurry. With hatred in his heart and his manifesto now concluded, Dylan leaves his room at the Peaceful Acres property and makes his way towards the Mother Emanuel AME Church. It is here that we move to the timeline of Dylan Roof, the Charleston Church shooting. The morning of June 17th, 2015. A hot summer's morning in Charleston, South Carolina starts just like many others before it. It's Wednesday. Children play in the streets as they enjoy the beginning of their summer holidays, whilst many of the locals make their way to work. Nine families in the community said goodbye to one another that morning, not knowing that it would be the last time they saw their relatives and loved ones alive. Meanwhile, almost 100 miles away in Eastover, South Carolina, 21-year-old unemployed Dylan Roof remains in bed after what was a fairly sleepless night for him. He starts his day in the early afternoon, reviewing his two handguns and his series of stockpiled ammunition cartridges before concealing them within the passenger footwell of his black Hyundai Elantra. Within the footwell is also a handwritten list of mostly black churches in the state. In the middle of that list was the Mother Emmanuel Church in Charleston. He wrote the following on a loose piece of paper that was also found in his car. Have lower IQs, lower impulse control and higher testosterone levels in general. These three things alone are a recipe for violent behaviour, and I must curb that. Dylan, who had recently grown distant from his biological mother and had therefore spent most of 2015 living between his father's home and living with friends at the peaceful Acres Ranch property, which was based in East Over Columbia in a predominantly black neighbourhood, during this time, as we have mentioned, he had become increasingly radicalised with deeply entrenched views on white supremacism, neo-Nazi ideologies, racial segregation and the belief that America was on the cusp of a race war. He writes the following on his website. Unfortunately, at the time of writing, I am in a great hurry, and some of my best thoughts, actually many of them, have had to be left out and lost forever. But I believe enough great white minds are out there already. I hate the sight of the American flag. Modern American patriotism is an absolute joke. People pretending like they have something to be proud of while white people are being murdered daily in the streets. After immersing himself heavily in a multitude of different online communities that shared the same belief, Dylan became self-radicalised by his time spent on the internet. Investigators believe that Dylan acted completely alone off of his own beliefs rather than adopting his white supremacist ideology through his personal associations or experiences with white supremacist groups or individuals or others. June 17, 2015, 6.13pm. After making the final entries to his manifesto, Dylan enters his car and makes the hour and a half drive from Eastover to downtown Charleston. It is not entirely clear what Dylan does for the next two hours, but many suggest that it would not have been abnormal for Dylan to simply sit in his car on a nearby road and wait, as had been the case when police noticed him loitering in a car park earlier this year. 8.17pm. Church surveillance footage shows Dylan Roof parking up directly outside the front of the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, during a Wednesday evening Bible study session. The church known as Mother Emanuel has a rich history within the African-American community and is an important symbol of civil rights and resilience. Dylan is seen getting out of the car before slowly and calmly approaching the building. He appears to be wearing a bum bag, or as the American users would say, a fanny pack wrapped around his waist. Nothing else but his appearance or demeanour seems to be out of the ordinary. He is wearing a grey jumper and grey jeans. He approaches the front door of the church, where he then attempts to push open the doors before realising that they are pool doors. Idiot. Yeah, I mean, he does look like one of the three stooges, to be fair. (laughs) 
Once he enters the church, Dylan joins the evening Bible study group, sitting quietly with the participants for about an hour. This is an opportunity for him to observe the people he's about to target. To Dylan's surprise, they greet him warmly, politely welcome him into the church by shaking his hand and even offering him hugs. Dylan is also offered refreshments by the congregation. In a later interview with the police, he reportedly told investigators that he almost did not go through with his quote-unquote mission because members of the church study group had been so nice to him. Which really makes this like, it adds an extra layer of heartbreak to it, the fact that they were so welcoming and like, obviously like they probably could see when his eyes like an outsider coming through quiet and and they were thinking, you know, we can welcome him and make him feel at home and maybe, you know, through the church we can can help him. So um, they opened their hearts to him. According to the survivors, once the group had welcomed him, didn't ask for Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who was the church senior pastor. Clemente then sat next to Dylan as the group's Bible study continued. During the study, it is alleged that Dylan would actively engage and often disagree with some of their conversations relating to the scripture. Otherwise, he seemed to keep himself to himself. There are some similarities here to the Christchurch mosque shooting, which would later occur in 2019, wherein the perpetrator, Brenton Tarrant, was even given warm greetings outside the mosque shortly before he opened fire on the very same people, claiming 51 innocent lives. Approximately 9pm. As the Bible study session draws to a close and the group begin to pray, after sitting with a group of 12 members of the church for almost 45 minutes, Dylan suddenly removes two handguns from his bag, a Glock 41 and a 45 calibre handgun, before standing up, stepping back and opening fire on the praying group. He fills the room and those within it with bullets as he meticulously begins to comb the building. In his bag, Dylan had eight magazines for his guns, each of which were filled with hollow point bullets, which he would reload with on five separate occasions, showing his absolute desire to inflict as much carnage, harm and horror as possible. So we've discussed hollow point bullets in previous cases before on the podcast, and essentially they are designed to once they, well, upon impact of the uh, the target, they essentially cause as much damage as possible. So, so with Dylan obviously having a huge amount of hollow point bullets ready, he is coming in with the intention of causing as much harm and as much pain as possible. Many of the victims fall to the ground immediately, and others begin to scream. Others attempt to shield their loved ones, and others attempt to run and hide. Blood as well as body matter slowly began to cover the floor tiles of the church, and the bullets would senselessly rain down on the group for the following six minutes, during which time Dylan began screaming racial slurs at the group whilst firing bullets towards them. He would also shoot additional bullets into those who had already fallen to the ground. He reportedly shouted towards those that were hiding, Y'all want something to pray about? I'll give you something to pray about. As the chaos continued, Dylan slowly approached 87-year-old Susie Jackson, who was by this point embracing with and trying to shield her 26-year-old nephew, Tywanza Sanders. He then pointed his guns at the pair. Tywanza asked Dylan why he was doing this to churchgoers and to people of good faith whilst trying to talk him down. Dylan responded by saying the following. I have to do it. I have to kill you all. You rape our women and you're taking over our country and you have to go. When Dylan proclaimed that he intended to shoot them all, Tywanza dove in front of his auntie Jackson and was shot first, shortly before Dylan turned the gun on the 87-year-old. Felicia Sanders, Tywanza's mother, was pretending to be dead on the floor with her granddaughter and another young girl whilst all of this was happening. She had to somehow keep her hand over her granddaughter's mouth in order to stop her from making noise. 
so yeah and she and she did this to the point that she was worried she might actually be suffocating her granddaughter which is just yeah absolutely a horrific set of circumstances to imagine Felicia is considered by many the absolute hero of this case, as she had also managed to lock two other people in a nearby pastor's office. She recalled the events as follows. I was hearing some grunting and so forth, and whomever it was, sounds like they were trying to get out the door. Um, and then Ruth came and shot that person, and they never made it out the door. Mm. Um, but I could tell it was a male, but I wasn't sure who it was at the time. Mm. And so we just sat under the desk with our hands over each other's mouths and, and so forth. And, um, and then, you know, I heard Ruth say that he had to do this and he walked out the door. And then I started hearing the first responders coming. Um, the, the first person they got to was the person that was outside of the office door. And I heard them say that, hey, here's one, this person, hey, he's still alive. So for a quick thought, I was just thinking, it could be Clemente, it mm. could be Clemente. Mm. And they kept saying, hey, stay with us. And they just kept saying that, stay with us, stay with us. And they, they got them, they got them out of there. So yeah, as you heard, you can't comprehend what you would do in a situation like that. And uh, yeah, she's an absolute hero. Well, her and her daughters are an absolute hero of this case. Whilst all of the carnage was unravelling within the walls of the church and lives were being taken by the minute, Polly Shepard said that she could hear Dylan approaching bodies that were clearly in agony on the floor and asking, did I shoot you yet? To many of his victims, as well as yelling racial profanities at them. She recalled the following. He asked me, did I shoot you yet? I said no. He said... I'm going to leave you alive so you can tell my story. Because we need someone to survive. Because I'm going to shoot myself. And you'll be the only survivor. Dylan would later be asked to confirm whether or not he made this statement when he has been interrogated, to which he laughed out loud before saying, Yeah, I remember saying that. According to the son of one victim, who claims to have spoken to another survivor, Dylan allegedly turned the gun to his own head and pulled the trigger, but discovered he was out of ammunition. Though many have argued this statement, as it's proven Dylan still had ammunition left over, and also would leave the church carrying one of his guns in case of any external encounters. Yeah, and you can kind of see the way he exits the building with that church surveillance footage. Like, he's very careful, cautious, looking around him, and he's holding the gun as if he's ready to to still continue firing. It's quite rare, though, for, for a case like this, mass shootings, as we've covered a few now, it tends to end either by death by cop, or they do they do take their own lives at the end. The way he acts afterwards is... is, is does um, separate him from a lot of um, the cases we've covered. During the agonising six minutes, Dylan shot and killed nine people, seriously injuring one other person, with five survivors managing to escape with their lives. The five survivors were Tywanza Sanders' mother, Felicia Sanders, as well as her granddaughter, as well as Polly Shepard, all three of whom played dead in order to survive. On top of this, Reverend Pinckney's wife and youngest daughter were later found by police to have been hiding inside the building during the shooting, but they were hiding in the pastor's office with the door locked. The victims were later collectively referred to as the Emmanuel Nine. His nine victims were Cynthia Hurd, aged 54, Susie Jackson, aged 87, Ethel Lance, aged 80, DePayne Middleton Doctor, aged 49, Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who was also at the time a state senator, aged 41. Tawanza Sanders, aged 26. 
Daniel Simmons Sr., aged 74, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, aged 45, and Myra Thompson, aged 59. 9.06pm, 50 minutes after Dylan first entered the church, 6 minutes after he fired the first shot. The same church surveillance camera sees Dylan slowly opening the front door of the church from within, before calmly emerging from it, gun in hand. He had just fired 70 rounds of ammunition, shattering the lives of hundreds of people in doing so. Dylan then flees the car park in his black Hyundai Elantra, leaving behind a scene of complete and utter horror. As we had mentioned, in order to try and stay alive, some survivors played dead to avoid being shot again and others were hidden in an adjacent office, where they could hear the entire ordeal take place and see shadows between the gaps from the floor to the bottom of the doors. At the exact same time, several 911 calls are made from within the church, all of which were increasingly more harrowing. Did you see him at all? Yes, he's a young 21-year-old white dude. He's got it in his hand. He's reloading. How many shots has he fired? I don't know. There's so many. God, please. But there's so many people dead, I think. Oh, my God. Can you talk to me freely? No, I can't. I'm really in the building. Just come in the back door. Later that night, an anonymous bomb threat is called to the Marriott Hotel on nearby Calhoun Road. Police believe that Dylan was the culprit behind this in order to create a distraction whilst he escaped. June 18th, 2015, so the following morning, based on a review of the church surveillance footage, subsequent license plate checks, as well as the descriptions provided to them by the 911 calls and survivors of the massacre, law enforcement officials identified Dylan Roof as the suspected shooter. Images of him from surveillance cameras are circulated by the media and a nationwide manhunt is launched. On the morning after the attack, police received a tip-off from a woman named Debbie Dill, who recognised Dylan, as well as his black car, parked up at a rest break along US Route 74. She recalled seeing the security camera images taken at the church that were distributed on her local news station, and she felt certain that it was Dylan. She later said when interviewed, I got closer and I saw that haircut. I was nervous. I had the worst feeling. Is that him or not him? So yeah, I mean, there's a good chance Dylan might have been on the run for a bit longer if it was not for uh, this lady. So straight away, what she did was call her husband, who in turn stayed on the phone with her to reassure her and convinced her to start following him. He also then contacted the police whilst she was on the line. And uh, yeah, Debbie Dill would actually follow Dylan uh, in his car for the next 35 miles until she was certain that authorities were moving in for an arrest. Debbie Dill said the following in a later interview with CNN. I was going to go back out onto 74 and see if I could catch up with him and at least get a tag number. Because, I mean, there was just something inside of me that said it wasn't just, it just didn't look right to me. I had seen the little tag on the front of his car and everything was just, you know, kind of, and I even noticed the, the haircut that he had from watching it on the news. So everything inside of me said, it's possible, but everything inside of me didn't want to believe it either. So, no, he he didn't make me do that. He, I suggested He just, <laughs> you know, he, I mean, I said, I'm going to go do that. And, and then I said, but he kept, he stayed on the phone with me and he stayed on the phone with the Kings Mountain Police. June 18th afternoon, Dylan is apprehended by police in Shelby, North Carolina during a traffic stop. He had managed to get 245 miles away from the crime scene. He's armed with a handgun and dressed in a change of clothes but does not resist arrest. Dylan waived his extradition rights and was flown to Sheriff Al Cannon Detention Center, which is located in North Charleston. There, he is immediately taken to the local police station, where investigators begin to interrogate him. When asked by investigators how many people he believed he killed that day, Dylan replied calmly, if I was gonna guess, five maybe. 
I'm really not sure. The majority of Dylan Roof's interrogation is available online. Throughout the interrogation, he shows very little remorse and is trying to laugh and joke with detectives. It also seems as if he was trying to come across as someone not within their right mind to the investigators. Throughout several hours of interrogation, Dylan outright admits that he was responsible for the Charleston Church shooting and confirms that his ultimate motive for this act of terror was to ignite a race war. That evening, then-President Barack Obama made the following statement at an arranged press conference. Once again, innocent people were killed in part because someone who wanted to inflict harm had no trouble getting their hands on a gun. We, as a country, will have to reckon with the fact that this type of mass violence does not happen in other advanced countries. Michelle and I know several members of the Emmanuel AME Church. We knew their pastor, Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who, along with eight others, gathered in prayer and fellowship and was murdered last night. June 19th, 2015. Dylan is brought back to South Carolina, where he is formally charged with nine counts of murder and one count of a possession of a firearm during the commission of a violent crime. He makes his first appearance at Charleston County Court for a bond hearing, and he does so via a video call due to fears for his own safety. So yeah, at this point, there was a lot of outrage surrounding the case and a lot of people that wanted to to harm Dylan as a result of his actions. And he does, in this video appearance, I think we used it for one of our Instagram posts, he does very much look like a comic book villain at some point because uh, he's standing there in front of the camera and he's got two guards in the background either side of him and he just looks completely... He, he just looks, I find that image terrifying for some reason. It's really, really bizarre. During the bond hearing, two of the survivors, as well as relatives of five of the victims, spoke to Dylan directly, with some of them saying they were praying for his soul and others saying that they forgave him. These brave people have been grieving and processing the trauma for a mere two days by this point. Judge James Skip Gosnell Jr., which is quite a name, who we'll hear more from shortly, concluded the hearing by making it clear that, as well as there being many direct victims of the horrific crimes that Dylan had committed, that there were also many victims now in Dylan's own family. He said the following. There are victims on this young man's side of the family. Nobody would have ever thrown them into the whirlwind of events that they are being thrown into. Judge Gosnell set a $1 million bond for the weapons possession charge, but would not allow any kind of bail on the nine counts of murder. The vast majority of the general public immediately called for the death penalty, which was supported by many of the local and surrounding members of government. So an interesting note here, Donald Trump, who, as we heard in our Central Park Five episode, was extremely vocal in his hatred towards the five black and Hispanic teenagers that he believed had committed the assault and rape of a jogger in Central Park, uh, as well as he was made very clear his beliefs of what he felt the punishment should be. He had very little to say about this case. Um, I couldn't really find a lot. The only thing I could find was when he was running for president a few years on from this crime, he would complain that he felt the press were being biased when he stated, the media is biased because it didn't blame Obama for Dylan Roof killing black people, which is just the most unbelievable comment there from Trump. Politically, at the time, for those that are interested, Hillary Clinton supported the pursuing of the death penalty, whilst Bernie Sanders opposed it. The evening of June 19th, a prayer vigil is held outside of the mother of Emmanuel AME Church, drawing thousands of people from the community and beyond. Dylan's plan backfires as an entire nation mourns the loss of nine innocent people, sharing their love and strength for one another, whilst Dylan is painted as a self-radicalised racist, villainous terrorist by the global news media. That was the thing with this case. I mean, like, we find with a lot of crimes when it happens to be a white guy, it doesn't often get called terrorism. 
it's, it's described as lone wolf or these other terms, but um, this definitely was a, a terrorist attack. Um, Dylan's mobile phone and computer were seized and subsequently analysed by the FBI. According to unnamed officials, he was in regular online communication with a large number of other white supremacists, though none of them appeared to have encouraged the massacre or prompted Dylan to commit any kind of violent crimes. On June 20th, 2015, three days after the shooting, a website titled The Last Rhodesian was discovered and later confirmed by officials to be owned by Dylan Roof. The website contained a series of photos of Dylan posing with symbols of white supremacy and neo-Nazism, along with a 2,444-word manifesto in which he outlined his views towards black people, as well as a number of other ethnic groups. He also claimed in the manifesto to have developed his white supremacist views after reading about the 2012 killing of Trayvon Martin and what he deemed the rapid nationwide rise of black-on-white crime. The manifesto written by Dylan also makes multiple notes of respect towards a Seattle-based white supremacist organisation known as the Northwest Front. This organisation, which was run at the time by a notable neo-Nazi author, Harold Covington, was also a founding member of the Rhodesian White People's Party, another organisation of which Dylan seemed to hold in incredibly high regard. While some of the photographs from the website seem to show Dylan at home in his bedroom and in his garden, others seem to have been taken on an apparent tour of slavery-related historical sites that were based in both North and South Carolina, so the Carolinas, including the Museum and Library of Confederate History in Greenville, as well as Sullivan's Island, which was the largest slave disembarkation port in North America. Photos show Dylan sitting and standing in front of four former plantations, as well as two separate cemeteries, one for white Confederate soldiers, where he seems to be standing solemnly, and another graveyard for slaves, which he seems to mock. July 7th, 2015. Dylan Roof is indicted by a grand jury of 33 federal charges, as well as 13 state charges, including hate crime charges, nine counts of murder, three additional attempted murder charges, obstruction of religious exercise resulting in death, and many others. Based on the advice of his lawyer, David Bruck, who is also someone we will hear more from later, Dylan pleaded not guilty to the charges. Several weeks after Dylan's plea was made, District Attorney Scarlett Wilson announced that the prosecution would be seeking the death penalty for Dylan Roof. August of 2016, we flash forward one year. The federal and state trials have both been delayed several times in order to give the defence and prosecution more time to prepare. Jury selection was also postponed and restarted several times due to the incredibly high public feeling regarding the case. There are also a number of psychiatric and competency evaluations conducted on Dylan, who many believe was trying to appear innocent by reason of insanity. During this time, Dylan bizarrely asks to represent himself at trial, which is granted. However, two months later, he requested to rehire his defence team for the guilt phase of this federal death penalty trial. So essentially, he wanted to gain more notoriety for himself and get a little more of the spotlight, all with the exception of the part of the trial that might actually cost him his life. So another reason why it's been believed that Dylan wanted to represent himself is he didn't want to um, go with the insanity plea. He wanted, you know, like, like a lot of people who do have manifestos and you know written ideolo ideologies, they don't, don't want to be proved to be not of sound mind. So, and as well, they were pushing for one of the tests to be done on him for being autism test and he didn't want to have that he was basically saying i'm not autistic and i think he, because he felt like his lawyers were trying to do that to him he then wanted to represent himself and and sh prove to people that he wasn't so um obviously it's very high stakes for him doing it as well yeah and the trial is finally scheduled to take place in december and with the trial now looming court documents filed by the prosecution in this month make note of their belief that dylan had actually written two other manifestos one in 2015 
which was a physical copy on his website's version, and another one that was written whilst he was in jail, recovered from his vehicle and jail cell, respectively. On December 7th, 2016, after many appeals and subsequent delays, the trial of Dylan Roof finally begins. The jury is given a full transcript of what has now been proven to have been the first half of Dylan's manifesto. They are also shown self-recorded videos of Dylan practicing shooting with his pistols in his back garden, which yeah, seems to be a thing that a lot of them do. We had a similar thing with Nicholas Cruz, um, and yeah, there's a lot of home movies made by Dylan Roof. Uh, which is alleged as well to have taken place in the Peaceful Acres property. Dylan is also seen once again in his gold gym vest, seemingly completely emotionless. In what was considered an eerily silent but highly emotional courtroom, extremely graphic 360-degree computer images of the crime scene within the church to show to the jury. The pictures showed the victims lying in pools of one another's blood on the beige tile floor of the Fellowship Hall at the Emmanuel AME Church. Most of the victims appeared to be clustered around circular tables where they had been holding a Bible study, with some clearly attempting to shield themselves and one another from Dylan's bullets. Shell casings and cartridge magazines from the hollow point bullets were scattered around, as were Bibles and purses. One of the 15 scans showed a wall poster with the words faith, hope and love, which was surrounded by blood spatter. Several people in the courtroom area for family members of the victims comforted each other, while others dabbed tears from their eyes. Many struggled to maintain their composure. December 8th, 2016, Dylan's biological mother, Amelia Kells, suffers a heart attack whilst in the courtroom during her son's trial. Apparently one survivor's testimony, this was that of Felicia Sanders, was so haunting, graphic and emotional that Dylan's mother collapsed in the courtroom of a heart attack while mouthing the words, I'm sorry. Several times before family members and court security tried to help her back to her feet. To much shock and anger of the general public, Dylan's attorney, David Bruck, tried to use this instance to force a mistrial. He wrote the following court documents to the judge applying for a mistrial. The survivor's testimony was so emotional that it caused a heart attack. This environment is not safe for spectators and even court personnel, including members of prosecution and defence. We are all crying with her. Thankfully, US District Judge Richard Gergel denied this mistrial request. Felicia Sanders said the following to the local media after the incident. I had to go through the horror of seeing my son and my aunt shot to death and shelter my granddaughter beneath the table. He is evil, evil, evil. Dylan said he was going to kill himself. I was counting on that. There is no place on earth for him other than the pit of hell. December 15th, 2016. Dylan is found guilty and convicted in federal court of all 33 federal charges, including hate crimes put against him stemming from the shooting. During the early portion of the trial, Dylan acted as his own attorney, but did not present a defence or call any witnesses. For the sentencing phase of the federal trial, Dylan once again dismissed his defence team and insisted on representing himself. In a statement to the court, he offered no apology or any kind of explanation for the shooting. Instead, he simply stated, There's nothing wrong with me psychologically. I would like to make it crystal clear. I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. January 10th, 2017, Dylan is sentenced to death by a federal jury for his role in the church shooting. He once again shows no remorse and does not offer any kind of apology or reasoning for his crimes. On March 31st, 2017, Dylan agreed to plead guilty in South Carolina State Court to all state charges pending against him. Nine counts of murder, three counts of attempted murder and possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. 
He did this in order to try and avoid a second death sentence. April 10th, 2017, in relation to the state charges, Dylan is subsequently sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the state charges. He is later formally sentenced to nine consecutive sentences of life without parole after pleading guilty to state murder charges. At the time of recording this episode in the summer of 2023, Dylan has spent six years on death row at the United States Penitentiary, Terre Haute, which is in Indiana, the same location where the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, was executed. Um, so yes, we're going to go on to the aftermath now of the case. Yeah, so when I when I read this, I couldn't, I really couldn't believe this. So just four days after the massacre took place, the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston surprised many when it reopened its doors. They reopened on Sunday the 21st of June to a queue of hundreds of people, and their first service was to commemorate and celebrate the lives of those lost. Reverend Norval Goff, the now presiding elder of the AME Church, said the following. This is our house of worship. The doors of the church are open. Praise be to God. No evildoer, no demon in hell or on earth can close the doors of God's church. It has been tough. It's been rough. And some of us have been downright angry. But through it all, God has sustained and encouraged us. When times of troubles come into our lives, how do we respond? Do we respond by being afraid? Or do we respond in faith? The blood of the Emmanuel 9 requires us to work not only for justice in this case, but for those living on the margins of life. We must stay on the battlefield until there is no more fight to be fought. In July of 2015, several predominantly black churches were burned down in what appeared to be a series of arson attacks. This prompted many to become angry at how quickly some of the victims' families had forgiven Dylan Roof. The fires, though, were later investigated and all proven to have been unrelated. In September of 2015, Joey Meek, uh, the friend of Dylan who had tried to hide his guns from him, was arrested. He was accused of lying to police officers during their initial investigation and therefore making a false statement. He was also uh, charged with failing to report a crime. He pleaded guilty and I think initially they had almost a half a million dollar bail uh, set for him and they were trying to use it as leverage in Dylan's trial. But eventually he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to serve 27 months in prison. On the 5th of October 2017, a lot of controversy was caused when the manifestos written by Dylan were released to Google Books. It is called The Last Rhodesian, The Manifesto of Dylan Roof, which is essentially made up of two separate manifestos, one written for the shooting and one written whilst he has been in jail. It is 32 pages in length and its blurb states the following. On June 17, 2015, Dylan Storm Roof shot and killed nine people at a church in Charleston, South Carolina. He wrote a manifesto before the shooting detailing his grievances with America and his thoughts on race. After the shooting, he wrote an additional manifesto that was found inside his cell and taken as contraband before later being published. Both manifestos are included in this work. On the 13th of March, 2018, then 18-year-old younger sister of Charleston shooter Dylan Roof, Morgan Roof, was arrested at a high school following a social media post that caused alarm to other students. Morgan Roof was charged with simple possession of marijuana and two counts of carrying weapons on school grounds. She had reportedly earlier posted a message on Snapchat referring to a national school walkout against gun violence, which was relating to Nicholas Cruz's Parkland school shooting. She posted the following comments on Snapchat. You're walking out for the allowed time of 17 minutes. They are letting you do this. Nothing is going to change. What the fuck do you think it's going to do? I hope it's a trap and you'll get shot. We know it's fixing to be nothing, but black people walking out anyway. Morgan Roof was granted a $5,000 bond and ordered not to attend school while out. 
So now we move on to Charles Cotton, and this uh, this rattled me. A lawyer from Houston who was also a board member of the National Rifle Association, he horrifically tried to place the blame of the massacre at the hands of Reverend Pinckney, who had obviously uh, died in the attack. He posted in an online forum that it was his fault for not allowing churchgoers to carry concealed weapons with them into the church and essentially said if they had guns, they would have been able to protect themselves against Dylan, and it's the Reverend's fault for not allowing them to take them into the church. His post was very quickly deleted as soon as it gained media attention. At the same time, Charles Cotton also criticised the effectiveness of gun-free zones, saying the following. If we look at mass shootings that occur, most happen in gun-free zones. On the 24th of September 2017, an alleged retaliatory attack occurred. This was referred to as the Burnett Chapel shooting in Nashville, in which a black gunman named Emmanuel Cadega Sampson claimed to have wanted to kill at least 10 white people. Uh, So obviously Dylan had killed nine black people and this was apparently his way of retaliating for Dylan's crimes. On this day he killed one woman and injured seven others before being apprehended by police. Dylan Roof allegedly inspired at least two other mass shooters, Peyton Gendron, who murdered 10 innocent people in 2022, and Ryan Palmeter, who murdered three innocent people this year in 2023. Both of them had Rhodesian flag patches. On a slightly more positive note, and you don't always hear about the ones that were prevented, just three days before we filmed this podcast, 38-year-old Jeffrey Harris from Ambridge, Pennsylvania, tried to enter a predominantly black church by pointing a shotgun at two women outside it. Fortunately, he was rushed and overpowered by a crowd before being arrested by police. He's currently being held in Beaver County Jail with a bail of just under $1 million. So that was the case of Dylan Roof, the Charleston church shooter. Yeah, an absolutely horrific one. And again, I'm, I'm surprised that there wasn't sort of more out there in terms of documentaries or other podcasts covering the case. I did find one podcast that really, I found this really, made me really uncomfortable. They really celebrated Dylan Roof's biological mother having a heart attack and they were kind of making a big a big piece about that and laughing and joking about it but that's horrific yeah I mean yeah it's it's uh yeah the heart attack thing as well that's just crazy in itself in terms of like she just slouched down and people thought didn't know what she was doing they thought she couldn't couldn't hear what was being said in the courtroom and it was more just kind of reacting to it but yeah it's, it's a horrible horrible case and it's it's really scary to think that someone can just go on the internet in their own little world and kind of come out a completely different person and have such hatred towards people and yeah how easily people can be indoctrinated or radicalized is a truly a horrific thing yeah absolutely and obviously at the time he's still on death row obviously we've we've covered uh, a lot of cases where people have i mean uh, the uh Dali routier last week she's been on there was it 26 yeah. years on death row so we don't imagine, obviously, there'll be any uh, developments in that case for a, for a very, very long time now. But, um, yeah, he's a, a particularly evil uh, person and uh, ultimately his wider mission completely failed. Uh, but, yeah, that was the case of Dylan Roof. Uh, we'll be back next week with another uh, big, big episode. Um, would you like a, a cryptic clue yes, for that uh, one? Yeah. Get on the phone to the farmer. I need a new pair of jeans. Okay. I feel like that one you've actually probably thought about. Um, yeah. The fair play to you. Um, um, Cheers. I don't know if anyone actually has got any of the clues yet. Do let, do let us know, guys, if you have a comment on uh, on any of the posts about this case, if you get the clue and you, you want to have a little guess. We'd be interested to see. And this week's case was, everyone, every house needs one, Bob. So. Yeah. They're getting there. They are getting there. Yeah, certainly. But yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. But yes, uh, thank you so much for for listening to this week's episode, and don't forget to give us a little cheeky subscribe or follow on the uh, audio platforms. A little review does more than you'll ever know. Um, and if you can't wait for next week, mm. we do have. 127-ish minisodes over on the website www.icmap.co.uk um, you get audio and visual over there as well as get cheeky little discounts on the online store we have five more big cases to come for this series including what will be the audience vote um, and how we do the audience vote we do one of these every series um, and basically we'll do a post on Instagram which is at could murder a pod and you guys can pick any case in the world um, we have a very good feeling what you might pick and then the top two that get the most uh, suggestions on that particular post will go into a sort of head-to-head showdown and the winner will be probably episode 16 or 17 of this series before our big finale so yeah be sure to give us a follow at could murder a pod we're also on facebook twitter threads um you know we're, we're all we're all about you we're all about you definitely i mean threads have been very much yeah underutilized by me i was gonna be posting on it and i don't know if threads have seen its day already i don't know if people feel yeah. like dead in the water should be called Deads, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> God, wrong. Don't know if you just put a laughter track there, that'd be great. Yeah, we we'll do. Uh, and yes, guys, like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, uh, I don't know. If you, you don't have to have a bowl cut if you've got a weirdly shaped head. You can have well, any, any style. Gangnam style. Just wear a hat. Yeah, just wear a hat. Um, embrace it. Get the tattoo hair, like I've said. It's the, the guy in Vegas. Well, I mean, that doesn't look sort of the shape of your head, is it? He, well, he had hair. If you get it really heavily tattooed in the in the dent. In the dent. Okay. All right then. All right, then. Um, we'll we'll <laughs> see. Until next time. We'll see you later. See ya. Take care of yourself too. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.